Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the Idle Hands podcast, where we hope to discuss and learn more about effective creative process. I'm joined today by the wonderful Welshman, Paul Bentz. Hello. And the endlessly talented, Roman Kadoshim. That's the kind. Hi, hi. How are you both today? Very well. It's sunny. The sun, it feels like spring is kind of just around the corner now, doesn't it? Like it's the first time in months where you can have the doors open and let a little bit of that cool March air trickle in through the window. <laughs> sunny London. <laughs> <laughs> I, you don't really think about it, but that, uh, today actually has been the first day I've had the window open most of the morning. Yeah, it's nice. It just makes such a difference, doesn't it? Like psychologically to how... Hang on, you got... Hang on my daughter's come in. I apologise. Sorry. Have you been up to anything this week, Roman? Yeah, I did, um, I did a job that I can't talk too much about. So I've just finished a job with them yesterday with about 20 deliverables. Apologies, boys. No need for an apology, mate. We were just catching up on what everyone had been doing this week. How about you, Paul? Have you been up to much this week? What have I done this week? Uh, so I'm having an office built at the back, so I've been doing... I've got a shed and a trampoline, and the shed is full to the brim, and uh, the trampoline I had to take apart on my own, which was... I'm, it was such a pain. It was such a pain. <laughs> and I've been to the tip about 327 times. I know I've been out for a little walk with a camera when I've had a chance. Yeah, every day, mate, every day, a couple of hours. Roman knows this. It's like a, it's like a meditative process. Of, you know, it just keeps me sane when everything else is going crazy. Is this more work on your uh, project? Yeah, yeah. Been slowly, slowly. I, you know, plugging away. Did it. I was went to this random spot on the river, and you have to go. It was really muddy, and you know, I was walking for ages, and I got, I got to the end of this point, and it's like a, like a railway bridge. And there was these two old guys, they must have been about 75, 80, and they were just sat there chatting. And I said, you know, I got chatting with them, how are you doing? You know, oh, we only get out once a week, so this is the only time my wives let us out. And Fred and Fred and Gordon, the name, they were just like, and they were saying, this is the best fun we've had in ages. They were covered <laughs> in mud, their jeans were covered in mud. And I, I, I got a picture, and a nice little picture with them. Oh, it, was, it was fun, it was fun, nice week-ish, you know. I can't wait for lockdown to be over now, I just want to... I really want to go and get on the tube and go into London and just just be among people and go to a festival, sit in a field. 21st of June, <laughs> fingers crossed. Woo-hoo, it could happen. It could we'll, see. we'll see about that. I'm, I'm a bit conservative with this. I'm not expecting too much, so I don't get disappointed. Where are you at the moment, Roman? I see you're in a swanky-looking uh, office. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a good start, actually, because it's, um, it's where my office is. My desk is... There, on the corner here, so I've got a little dark corner of the office. It's a place called Space 4. Um, it's a collaborative space and it's a, it's a cooperative. It's a not-for-profit space. And they focus mostly on um, tech for good, what we call tech for good, uh, and things that are for the good of society. So it's, um, it's people who are helping people, and it's great. It's a great space. And I'm one of the few for-profit companies in here. And, uh, yeah, so it's like 15 meters from my desk, which is great. Nice, nice. Better than being home. What have you been up to this week, Dan? I've been working. So um, I don't know if I've mentioned this before on a podcast, but I work for a charity. Um, so I've mostly been doing my nine to five. been working a little bit on my business. But, so Boris come out on Monday and said, here's our roadmap. Hopefully 21st of June, we're, we'll be basically back to normal. And I've been kind of reflecting back on the, the things that I've achieved during lockdown so far. Back last March when we got locked down, I really wanted to to actually be a bit productive so yeah i don't think i've quite got a compiled list yet but 
when I really started thinking about the things that I'd done, I, I sort of, I was, had a little bit of pride. It was nice. So, so yeah, that's kind of what I've been up to this week. Nice, mate. Nice. Cheers, man. Cheers. Let's get into today's main topic. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the impact of color on your work and how you might think about using it. Roman is perfectly placed to, to be in, in this conversation because he actually does a lot of professional color grading and it would be really good to, to cover off a couple of things like what color grading actually is. Okay, well, first off, you have to understand, generally speaking, what the process of filmmaking is. People have an idea, they, they will write a script and find actors and pre-produce the whole thing. And then they will plan it and comes the day, they will start shooting, they will do production. And then once everything's been filmed, um, or generally during production, then we start post-production. And in post-production, there's editing, so the, the cutting of the film, there's sound editing, music, all that sort of stuff. And then the very last stage of post-production is color grading. Now, it's part of a category that we call finishing. And what finishing is, is literally making this very final product from all the elements that have been uh, created up to that point. So mastering the audio is finishing and uh, mastering the color, which is color grading, is also finishing. Now, what we tend to do is sort of a three-part process. You have um, normalizing the image. Footage is generally when you shoot something with a cinema camera, it's shot in a specific format. And so the image is very flat and you retain a lot of information, a lot of detail in the image. That also means that the image can't be used straight away. So you have to normalize that, which is something that we'll do during the dailies stage. when We render the rushes into usable footage. For the editing. But then uh, after that, you have to balance the image, which means if you have you know, 15 cuts in a scene, with three different angles from three different cameras, then you have to make sure the color is the same everywhere. So then it's, it's seamless and your eye is not distracted by a red that's not quite as red or someone's bracelet that's more visible than, other, than on another shot, something like that. Um, and then the last bit is giving the look and feel of the piece, which is I think what people have in mind, generally speaking, when they talk about color grading. We actually make a distinction between those two processes. There's um, uh, color balancing, and then there's color grading. So that's, that's what color grading is. You generally um, fix contrast and give it a look. Now, it used to be called color timing in the time of film uh, when it was all done analog. Now, the best colorists in the world today are people who have some form of experience with color timing, even secondhand, uh, and who have gone into the transition into digital. I'm just sort of applying some of the stuff I know about, about music production. When you said it's, it's kind of mastering for movies, that, that sort of made a lot of sense to me, that putting that final polish on it. I think people would often be, and I know this for music at least, but people would be really shocked to actually hear like an initial mix before it's mastered. It sounds, sure, it, sure. It, it sounds like really, really raw and like rough and it, it isn't anywhere near as pleasing as, as it is when it's finished. And I'm guessing it's probably the same in video, right? Yeah. It, what's interesting when you watch, I mean, Paul can tell you that uh, when you sat with me doing a grade, it's funny how the process seen linearly doesn't make a lot of sense. You kind of wonder why you're making something look worse so that something else can look better. It's, it's a bit of a weird process. But when you understand what each thing does, then you can focus on one problem at a time. And so if I listen to you mixing something, I'll be bothered by how loud the symbol is when you won't care because you're looking at the bass, maybe. Sorry, Roman, a quick question for you. So how, how similar do you think gradient is between stills and a film? Like it's massively different, right? It, it, it is, it isn't because it... Everything in terms of theory that applies to stills applies to video, obviously. 
Um, you know, when you take an image that's very bland and you make it a very warm, sunny day, then it feels warm and sunny and it feels maybe a little bit happy and a bit elated. And maybe if you oversaturate things a little bit, maybe it will bring some references, you know, things like your favorite sitcom or so maybe it's overly exaggerated. Maybe it's a bit funny or maybe it's a bit um, something like commercial because maybe it makes you think of a brand. So all of this works in the same way when it comes to stills or uh, video. But the process of doing the color is completely different. If you bring um, a picture in Photoshop and you do some work, if you give me the same picture and I do in Photoshop or in Lightroom or any of those, I do my process. And then I was to take that same image and do it into a color grading app. My approach would be completely different. I might try to do the same. I might use similar, you know, curve techniques and things like that. So all the theory behind it is the same. But I think the approach uh, of what you're trying to do is different. And the main reason for this is the um, the limitations, if you like, those pictures might end up printed or on screens, and that's kind of that. And we there's a couple of color space that everyone uses, you know, sRGB and Adobe RGB, and that's fa- that's fine. Like the, the difference is not massive, and you can look at it on a hundred different screens. Although it will look different, it is just generally a simpler process. Do you, do you think the process changes the outcome all that much? So I'm, I'm guessing, and, and we'll talk about in a second, we'll talk about your intent and, and how you approach something and the decisions you're making along the way. But does that different process massively change the outcome? Well, it's all relative, isn't it? But yes, it does. It does. Because I think I am using a different starting point when I do color grading or when I do processing of an image. Because the image, first off, does not move. So I can be a little bit more aggressive with an image. And also, most cameras today film or shoot raw. I'm talking about stills camera or shoot roll. And so it, there's a lot of leeway. So I could even do multiple versions of this image and sort of one for the shadows and one for the highlight, and sort of mix them together. And that would still be not a massively complicated process if you know what you're doing, like bracketing. But in, in video world, moving images, your face, whatever you're doing to the face, to the skin, has to be tracked. So then the amount of effort you put into fixing the face is not quite the same on a still as it would be on on video. So I think you choose differently what you're willing to do within the time allocated so that it gets you the closest to that final result. So you might have the same intention to get to the same point and you will use a different route to get there and maybe you'll accept a different kind of compromise on the on the result than you would with stills. So in that sense, the result is different. But I could take a still image from a video uh, that's been shot raw, so for argument's sake, uh, and just that still, do it in Photoshop in Lightroom and get to a certain result, and I could get almost exactly the same result on film uh, if I know that that's what I'm trying to do. So then there's some tools I won't, I won't use in one or the other application. So, so from a point, point of view of, like, I'm, I'm a creative, I've just made, um, I don't know, a small advert, and I'm giving you this piece of content... What is the process in terms of the conversation you're having in how you develop the color for that piece? Is it is it they usually come with you with specific ideas or is it quite open and it's refined over time? You have a bit of everything, but I think the the most common situation is someone comes with say if it's an advert, for argument's sake, if it's an advert, they've thought about what the advert should look like before they even went to shoot it. So they have very clear ideas as to what they Let's say, for example, it's a short film. You've got someone who comes with a short film. They might come at the beginning of the process, which is great when they do, but it's not, 
is not the most common of situations because it's often an after the fact, like an afterthought. They're like, oh shit, I also I have to deal with that color grading situation because now I'm close to finishing my editing and I don't know who's going to do it. Um, but when they come in early and you have a conversation, you talk about what sort of camera they're using, what sort of look they're going for, and they talk about references. And there's a few websites like FilmGrab and, and other places similar where you just type the title of the of the film and it gives you you know 20, 30, 40 stills from different scenes where you can really see the color and the feel. Um, and so you build a set of images that kind of represent what you're after. If you talk about jobs, generally speaking, because it's, there's quite a, a wide variety of jobs that tend to come um, through the door when you're a colorist, the nicest ones are the ones where it's been nicely filmed and they know what they want. And they're a bit flexible because they understand it's not because they want something that is the best thing for it. Uh, and it's a process, therefore, you come with an idea to do something and you end up with a result that might be slightly different. It, it varies greatly from one end to the other. Interestingly, Roman, I know you come from um, a photography background and I'm intrigued to think how, how, how does that play into your role as a colour greatest now? Has it informed your work in a way? Yeah, so I think maybe now is a good time to give you a quick introduction as to who I, you know, what I do and who I am and how I got to it maybe a little bit. I mean, Paul knows me really well, so you will know that story he's heard. We, we should also, um, we should probably also cover off that uh, you may have missed it in episode one, but... Roman and Paul actually have worked together quite a lot in the past. It might also be worth covering off sort of uh, the history of you guys as well at the same time as chatting about this. Roman. Okay, well, let's, let's start with this. And I, I, um, I'm 40, I'm French. I've been in the UK about 15 years. Um, I came for love, although after getting married, we got divorced. It's, it's, um, that wasn't to Paul, was it? That wasn't what? to Paul. Paul, Paul, <laughs> Paul has always had the nickname of my work wife or my work husband. Uh, we, we, I speak as much to Paul as I speak to, to my partner. I prefer wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so about, about uh, we were working for the same company, uh, a law firm. I was uh, in charge of their IT department in the, in the Paris office. Right before I got the position, I was sent to London um, for about three months. And while I was in London, I, I met Paul and we became good friends. And I picked up a camera because uh, a week before... Going to London, uh, my car one evening was lit on fire outside my house. My parents were on holiday. I was young, I was 25. After speaking to the, the fire brigade, um, they were like, oh, you need, you need to take pictures of this. You need to send it to the insurance. So I thought, oh, fuck it. I'm making a bit of money. I'll get myself a nice camera. So I bought a camera. And um, I went to London a week later. And I, I met Paul about a week in and uh, fell in love with photography around that time. He had a lot more experience than me. And I think he mentioned this in the first podcast. He used to go at lunchtime and take pictures all the time. And he invited me to join uh, one day. And then the, the, the friendship started from there. And my passion grew even more. And we spent all our time on Flickr and all that sort of stuff, trying to figure out how to do certain things and, and talking about what could be and all that sort of stuff. So that was great. Um, I, I kept on working in IT for a couple more years, two, three years. Um, came back to Paris, you know, my promotion, everything went well. And uh, during these three months in London, I met my ex-wife, which, which is what made me want to move to London. About a couple of years later, I had moved to London. I was working for a really nice company in Oxford Circus, one of the top 10 uh, marketing company in the country. And I was their IT manager. It was great for a while. I would go out at lunch every day to take pictures. I'd meet Paul, all that sort of stuff. And then uh, made redundant. And about 
three months later, it was the crisis of 2006, I think it was, and there was, there was no IT jobs nowhere. My ex-wife at the time said to me, but you know, you're doing really well with photography. Maybe you should, you should do more of that. And Paul was offered a, a beautiful package, redundancy, voluntary redundancy at the time that he took. He went and took his first job for the BBC. He had, you know, his first successes with photography. And he was talking about how easy it was. So to me, it became a possibility. I thought, well, maybe I should give this thing a try for a bit. You know, maybe I should, I should see photography. The door had already been broken open, right? Yeah, if the, the Pandora box was wide open, my <laughs> friend. I was completely obsessed with it. That's all we could talk about. Um, I had my camera everywhere. Uh, with me, with all my lenses, I would go anywhere with a back camera pack, <laughs> a backpack, with all my stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I started with a really rubbish camera as well, a 350D. It was, it was just, I just loved it. It didn't really matter. Mm. And um, so a few months later, I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll try this thing. I started to get my first few jobs. I started with uh, music photography and editorial photography, things that I liked Um creating on the spot. So the kind of environmental portrait type stuff. Um, they would say to me, oh, you know, there's this lady, um, she's a singer, she's been doing music for 50 years. Uh, like for example, Martha Reeves from Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. And, you know, she's a staple and she's this old lady and we need to make this really lovely picture of her. Uh, and other days it would be people like Shaggy or Akon or whatever black artist you can think of. An interesting note in you, and I think it's, um, like me and my man kind of, kind of got into it at exactly the same time, and it was always, and I think this is a really helpful note for people, is we were always slightly competitive, not, not in a, like, <laughs> not in a, like, a, I'm better than you. Like brotherly, like, like, like we, a brotherly yeah, competition. Yeah, we, we it really helped, I think, because it forced, like, Roman, like, without a shadow of a doubt, he's the most technical, knowledgeable person I know. Like, he's like the oracle. He could, he could, do you know, one of those people can read a book and then tell you exactly what's in it three minutes later. He's like, he can, he can, he can, he can destroy an instruction manual. Like, for me, where I'm not really good at the, the technical stuff, I kind of, it was always me just shooting and understanding that process by doing, where a man was maybe the opposite of that. He would, mm -hmm. he would, like, absolve all the information and I go, how'd you do that? <laughs> and he'd show me and, it, and, and that's kind of, that's kind of how the relationship yeah. like blossomed, I think. He actually I've always felt, I've always felt that you need to understand how something works to then forget how it works and focus on making it work for you. Um, and then I think Paul learns through doing, whereas I need to kind of figure out a little bit about it before I go and do it. And then Hopefully you do it almost perfectly straight up and then I get motivated to keep going. You know, that sort of, that sort of thing. It's very true though what, what Paul says. My, um, my encounter with him in terms of beyond the friendship, because the friendship is a big part of it, obviously, but beyond uh, the friendship, it's, it's, it's this encounter that's been so central to my creative growth over the years. And he's mentioned that I, I used to be very, very shy. Uh, not so much that I couldn't talk to people, but that when it mattered, I didn't know where to start. So I would stay quiet quite a bit. Paul would be quite loud. Um, and in all aspects of um, the way we are as people and the way we are as photographers, we seem to have found ways for it to be complementary to each other. So for me, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I love him like a brother, like a friend. I, I love him to bits. He's, he's really been central in everything creative. But then when color grading started, I think I sort of, you were talking about finding your voice in one of the mm. previous episodes. 
um, I started to kind of find my voice there and to realize what my voice was when I was a photographer. But just to, to go back on what I was talking about earlier, just to finish this little like, sort of quick history of, of what led me to color grading. So after doing a, a bit of uh, editorial photography and, and music photography, I used to shoot like three or four gigs a week. After that, when Paul and I decided that maybe we needed to make some money, we thought maybe we should do some commercial work. Um, and we started building up for that. And Paul had his first couple of contacts that we thought maybe we could do work with. We created a company, which I'm still running, called Soda Visual. And we really focused on providing commercial, sort of high-end commercial photography, but at a fair price. So we wanted to be a company that you could come to. If you sell a product or a service, you could come to us and you'd get the best bang for your buck. You wouldn't have to spend more than what you have. You'd spend what you have and we'd do the best we could and we'd be as transparent as we could. And so some projects would go would fit completely under Paul's skills um, and some projects be more my kind of thing. So he doesn't like shooting in the studio too much. I'm feeling like it's my element because once the setup is done, I know I just have to interact with the person. It's great. Um, so we, we, we found our ways there and then, and then we built on that. It almost feels like whereas Paul likes a lack of control, you almost want you want the control, right? And it was this is the beautiful thing, I think, is that over time we both kind of learned off each other. And those like so the the technical side of lighting and the studio stuff, you know, even today I, I don't get excited about it, but I know I can go and do it. I know I can turn up now because I've done it enough times that it's kind of in the back of my mind. Equally I can tell you that I've I've been embarrassed. So many times over the first few years of us working together that I wouldn't get embarrassed anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and not that he tried to be embarrassing, although he did sometimes, but just <laughs> that it, it just, we, we've grown in our own ways. I think we have, I've become much, much more confident. Uh, I've had to kind of fight my corner because Paul has a lot of ideas and a lot of good ideas. And sometimes it's a bit overwhelming because sometimes you're just trying to get one job done. So I've reined him in, in many ways. And gone like, well, that's great. Write it down. Move on, because that's not for now. But at the same time, he's forced me to find my corner and to say, no, 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 no. This is not how we should do this. This is how we should do this. What what shifted to give you that confidence? Well, <laughs> it's a mix of things. Making a bit of money, not a lot, but just being paid a little bit, you know, fairly for for some of the stuff you do. That's a good boost. Um, I think realizing after the fact that you were right. Um, and being a bit upset about it sometimes leaves a good positive mark on you. You think, mm, next time I should probably say it. Um, also some successes, I think. Some, some, some things that have just worked out. And, you know, say, for example, when I was shooting um, live, live music photography and an artist would get in touch and say, I've seen these pictures that you've taken at my gig and why wow, they're amazing. Can I have them? And you look at what's been done of, of that. I'm talking about, you know, a big gig of I've shot from Jay-Z to Rihanna to whoever, like, some of the smaller artists, like say the brand new heavies um, band from my young days, uh, acid jazz and mix of other things, a bit poppy, loved it. Uh, and one day I had the opportunity to shoot it and they got in touch and they willing to, wanted to use one of them uh, for the cover of their live recording of the gigs. It's great. Like all these sort of thing can give you a really good boost. Just a little, I, I guess what it is, is it's that kind of the imposter syndrome that we all feel from time to time. And I guess you realize over time that actually you're not an imposter, but you're not an imposter and, and you do know what you're doing, right? Mm-mm. Yeah, absolutely. I was speaking to a man this week and I was thinking, I said to him, like, in the spectrum of like experience to inexperience and where you fit on the, on the, on the line, if you were going to draw a line from the really inexperienced 
uh, like super knowledgeable, know everything, you probably put yourself somewhere in the middle because like you never, you never know everything. Well, they say that um, the more you know about a subject, the more you realize how much you don't know about a subject. So at the beginning you think, oh, if I learn that much, then I'll be 50% of the way. And then you get there and you're like, "Mm, actually, if I learn that much, maybe I'll be 50% of the way. And then here's down the line, you're like, actually, I've touched on the surface. There is so much more below, below the surface. So I think it's particularly true about photography and the big, the big categories of art. Um, the more you dig, the more you realize there's categories and subcategories and sub-subcategories and, and trends and different approaches to do the same thing, different processes, different tools. Um, I, I can definitely identify with that. I, I know that, I mean, Paul said you, you'd sort of put yourself in the middle of the spectrum of experience and I know that every time I think about it, I would I would probably go way way further over to the inexperienced side. I never feel particularly experienced, and every time every time I get a little closer to it, I feel like I've actually just moved a million miles further away because I'll meet somebody that just knows orders of magnitude more than I'll ever know, and they just <laughs> they'll just sort of give you that feeling. Actually, you don't know what you think you know. You know, it, you know that's the person I try to be, not like not in an arrogant way, as in I don't want to be the person who knows the most. To, to say that I know the most, but I want to be the person who knows the most so that I don't have to worry about not being the person, uh, like not being good enough or, or not being able to kind of hold my own. I, I definitely um, aspire to be that person too, but I, I, I feel, I don't, I don't know if that's on the cards for me. I feel like I'll always be the, the inexperienced one asking the questions. Um, just coming back to color grading, we were talking earlier about the sort of how you got how how you started to get into color graded? I'm not sure we ever really. Yeah, got to the end so of it. I'll, I'll get to that quicker. Um, so af- after doing all this kind of different kind of photography with um, first editorial stuff on my own as a freelancer and, and music, and then eventually with Paul doing commercial stuff in the same mindset, trying to make a bit more money, so I need to do a bit of um, a bit of video production here and there for clients, existing clients. And then one day, a friend of mine said to me, "You know, there's this application um, called DaVinci Resolve that just um, released a free version of it." And it's basically the full software minus like three features. And I thought, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look into that. I've always loved color. Um, while Paul is a massive black and white photography fan, um, I tend to approach most things as color, except for dramatic effects of some sort. I will, I will go black and white. I really love color. I thought, I'll give it a try. I'll have, I'll have a look. I don't know why, what it is about specifically this application, but within about three to four days, I just knew how it worked. I can't explain because I just... I felt like the process made sense. So what I said I'll do is I'd play around with it for a little bit and then I'd buy a book. So I bought a book. Um, I'll give you the, the link to the book. You can put uh, in the notes of the, of the show because I think oh, yeah, it's an interesting be great. book to look at. Um, and I read it from cover to cover five times. Now, fast forward about three months. We've done a couple of projects with Paul. One day I think we filmed uh, someone doing a live live performance in, in somewhere outdoors, somewhere with a guitar, um, another time or something else. So, and I, I brought these projects in and I started looking at what could be. And then I had a call from a friend of my ex-wife uh, from America who said to me, look, I've got this project. I know you want to learn. I need someone to help me. I'm not in a rush. I've got this documentary. Uh, can you grade it for us? And obviously there's no pay, but, you know, whatever comes out, comes out. So I thought, yeah, that sounds perfect for me. So my very first project as a colorist was a project I've never had since then. It's a full documentary. I've never done a full documentary since then. 
now that I know what I'm doing, I haven't had a single documentary to grade yet, right? <laughs> um, but I did that documentary and what was really frustrating is it had half of the footage was in black and white baked in. Right. So there was no, there was no color to recover. There was nothing. So I had to work with, I, I had one of the hardest kind of projects you can get as a colorist um, before I even knew what I was doing. Um, and then one thing led to the next. After doing this, I did a couple of other bits here and there, mostly music videos, things where you can be a little bit off and it doesn't matter. It's colorful, it's creative, it's whatever you want to call it. And I think it's not until about a couple of years in that I felt I could call myself a colorist. Um, there's not a lot of places where you can learn about color grading. And one of those places, which I mentioned to you earlier today, um, called Lowpost, L-O-W-E-P-O-S-T, is a place where you, you pay a subscription. The model's going to change, but currently it's about $50 a year. Um, and they teach you real, real world techniques uh, by real co working colorists today. And when I started finding places like this, and I started to realize that what I thought I knew, I could say now for sure I really do know and I really do understand so I felt like these things now were not things that I had to worry about. I could then learn about the layer above. So you learn how to balance an image and you've done it right, but then you still struggled on things. And then you, you realize that the main techniques that you use are the most common techniques, the most accurate techniques, and it doesn't break the image. So you think, oh, actually it's not too bad. I can now move on to things to do with contrast and contrast curve and why they work a certain way. Um, and so alongside photography and videography, um, color grading sort of started becoming a thing that we do at Soda. And over time, it's taken more and more space. And now it's about 50% of the work we do, the rest being a mix of stills and videography. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's what I do. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. Love it. That's, that's really cool. And I, I really like that now, having done that, you've basically put that other feather in Soda Visual's cap. You can now offer that whole package. So instead of just stills or just video, now it's you, you can do the sort of pretty much the cradle to 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 grave product for any commercial any commercial uh, customer that comes your way, right? I just say that's always been kind of I, I think it's a really good point. Is like all of these extra sort of skills all add up to being able to provide like a service from front to back. And we talked about it a lot in Mirror Man over the years about being able to you know, manage a project. So you, some, sometimes there'll be a job will be a hybrid of stills and video. Like on, on bigger jobs, there would be teams of like, what, 12 or 13 people sometimes. You'd see that each of those people would have a definite individual skill, right? You know some of the skills that you could pull by just watching people. Like you know you could do the video, you know you could do the editing to a point, you knew that you could do the colour grading. And so again, it's this, it's filling the gaps within this kind of, line of work where you're able to turn up and say to a client, you know, actually we can do it from front to back, everything that you need. Um, and even if we couldn't do it, we would, we would know people who could do a specific, you know, what well, we did a job for, what was the name, that free view job, the, the cinemagraphs. Yeah. Yeah. So, friend union. Yeah. It was funny. Like we didn't know what cinemagraphs were when I was, I had this call came in from a friend saying, oh, do you know how to make cinemagraphs? We were like, yeah. Looked on the internet quickly, you know. Google. He gave me a call and said, we need to figure out how to do cinemagraph. We need to do a test and we need to do pricing for it. And we have 12 hours tomorrow morning and it needs to be, it needs to be out. <laughs> okay. So what is a cinemagraph? <laughs> it's a moving still. It's, it's, it's a pseudo video. It's a GIF. It's a, right. it's a loopable couple of seconds where a single element in the still 
is moving. So, so it's a still, and you've got that one element moving. It's not a thing. It, it's it's a fact. Okay, it's, a, it's a trend. It's a, it was everywhere for a year or two, and then you don't hear about it anymore. I agree with you, Paul. And I think when you start as a one-man band, because I think you, as creatives, we kind of all start as a one-man band most of the time, especially photographers. You, know, you don't need a bunch of assistants. You just need to figure out how to take nice pictures. Mm. You realize you've got gaps in your knowledge, and you turn to your peers or you turn to friends, or in my case, I, I would turn to Paul, you know, to ask about what do you think, how do, where do we go, where can I find the sensor? And you start filling the gap. Um, but as you become busy, then you don't have time to do all these things to the standard that you are happy with. And so then you start going the other way where you basically bring in people to, to do the things that you're the least good at. So for us, it started by having um, sometimes a producer, often an assistant, um, and then very quickly became, okay, well, actually, a lot of the stuff that we shoot, Paul will process them because I'll do a lot of the production. But then when we ran out of time and we would, do, we would need help, we'd get a producer. And then eventually became we need a, a video editor because actually I did so good, but we need the edits to be great. And you can't be great at everything. So slowly you build up this team. Um, but the thing that's very important in, in this context and what we're talking about right now is that all of it informs your creative process. So if you learn how to edit, even if you're not a great editor, you know when a cut works. You do know. You watch it and you know. And when you look at a picture that's been processed a certain way, you know if it speaks to you or you don't. And when you can put words to, to, to these concepts and to these ideas, then you can communicate whatever you want um, with the rest of your team and the people this is into. That's perfect. And, and that actually brings me straight on to a thing that I'm really curious about is why is color grading important? What does, what does color do to, to somebody's work? Why, why is it important? Such a huge subject. I think it's something to do with emotion. You know, we, we associate certain colors to certain things and, and certain emotions to these things. And therefore, by extension, emotions to color. Um, there's a whole loads of books about color theory and, and why the master painters choose certain colors over others and certain palettes over others. And if you want to be a good colorist, I think you need to understand some basic concepts of that and have um, a strong opinion you know, what, what looks good uh, to you. Just that it's, it's a huge part of it. And the other side of it is cultural. So what we think looks good in, in France, in the UK or in America might be completely different to India or to Pakistan or, or if you go on the other side of the world, in Africa or in Australia. I don't know. It's, it, there is a different set of aesthetics and that's why when you go to, in, to another country and you turn on the TV, sometimes it's um, Something I've no, I'll say is that Roman, like all through his photography career, if, if you look at his pictures, they would always have a be balanced. If you know what I mean, there would always be a balance to the work, and I think that's that's, that's the, not not cleanness is maybe the wrong word. It's trying not it's not clean, but there was like a consistency. I'm quite square, if that makes sense. I'm quite a square. Like I, I like things to be in place. If a subject should be at the center, it should be dead center. Um, but if it needs to be uncomfortable, then I'm happy with it to be slightly off-center because it bothers me. Um, it, I, I, everything has to be kind of thought out and reasoned. And so everything has to be neat. And if it's white, it has to be clean. And if it's empty space, it has to be empty. And so it gives... Uh, I, when you talk about voice and you talk about style, and especially for me right now with color grading, it kind of needs to be technically correct 
but also pleasing to a certain degree uh, to the eye. And then on top of that, it needs to do whatever it was supposed to do. So if it's... It has to fulfill your intention. Yes. So I've done a kind of a horror movie. It needs to be dark and dingy, and but I like it clean. So how do I make it clean and dingy? So basically I remove the grain that's unwanted, but then I place my own grain in there to the amount that makes me happy and, and I feel fits the, the visually, the, the aesthetic uh, that I could see for that film. Obviously after conversations with the director. It's a big personal thing. You know, you like something, you don't like something. Paul and I have talked about some the films that we love and we we, um, we we talked once and he was like, oh my God, man, I've seen this film called Drive. It's insane. The colors are insane. And I watched it and I thought, yeah, the colors are amazing and the work is amazing. But I think I appreciated it in a completely different manner because as soon as I watched it, I could see what part of the aesthetic Paul liked. The, the harsh lights, the, the, the strong intent, uh, things that you can find in his photography, uh, but done in color, because he's very black and white, but the film does it in color, and it's beautiful. Whereas for me, it's, it's all clean, super technically perfect. It's, it's, everything is complementary. Um, all those aspects are really important to me. That is super interesting as well, like particularly you talking about the, the intention that you, you like to put into your work and even if you're intentionally moving things off center to make them feel slightly less comfortable to you. And that, that's something I've, I've never really considered. Like I, I know just talking about my photography, cause I've never really, I've never really tried to shoot any film. I never put that video button on. I'm obviously looking for something very different to you when I, when I shoot, I'm, I'm looking for balance in the frame, right? I'm trying to get the right balance of, of subjects across my frame and, and trying to get balance that way. But I'm, I'm never really that fussed about having, having things being perfectly mm -hmm. equidistant from the, from the frame corners, or I guess I'm not looking for the awkwardness in the same way you are. I, I, I'm, I'm never that worried about things being clean or technically correct. But what about, uh, what about the editing stage when you get to bring the, the, that still into your computer and you look at it on, in, in Lightroom do you then think, oh, this bit of center, maybe I should tweak it there and do it a bit like that? I don't often put that much thought into my editing process, which I think is why I'm going to find this this next bit of our conversation quite interesting about about your decision making process when when you when you actually get to work on your images. I tend to have a style. Did you take a look at the rules that I sent over? Did you did you have a chance? Yes, and I processed them, and I have did. Them here. Okay, right. Yes. So this might be a perfect time then to, to start talking about maybe some of the decisions you made along the way and, and get a bit of a glimpse into your decision-making process. So, okay, I'll, um, I'll, I'll bring them up and I'll share my screen with you. I know the, the people who are simply listening probably not be able to see it. And then maybe we can try to keep it. I'll put it in the show notes. So anybody listening, if you scroll down in your show notes, click over to the web page and you will see these images uh, on, on that page. So you can, you can kind of follow along. Okay, so before I start, I want to say one thing as a disclaimer, is that the, the approach for stills um, that is shot by someone else and stills that is shot by you is different. And the main reason for it is a good chunk of your intent is in the taking of the picture. And you note what you, you know what you're actually looking for. Oh, you've just mentioned something and I didn't think about this before. I should probably introduce this because I haven't actually explained what what we're doing right now. So I've sent over some uh, raw images to Roman to take a look at. Um, I was particularly interested in the decision-making process. So Roman's never seen any of my work, at least not outside of this raw form that I've sent him. I thought this might be a really nice 
insight into into the way he he looks at color and contrast and light and shadow and all that all that kind of stuff that we're we're talking about now i i guess this is as close as i could think of getting to giving him full creative control over something just to see just to see where where we ended up so roman has kindly edited some some of these raws that i sent over it looks like you've done all five that i sent in fact Mm-hmm. So this this is probably a really good time to to try and talk about that decision making process. South Bank, right? South Bank. It is South Bank. Well recognised. The, the the South Bank image. Let's start with this. Um, so maybe I should say as a disclaimer that the processing someone's images is very different to processing your own. Um, and I think when you go and shoot an image and then go process it, a big part, a big chunk of that intent is in the taking the picture. So. Um, on this image, you can see if, if you, you are able to share yourself the, the original ones. Um, I've cropped the, the image a little bit, removed a bit of the frame at the bottom that had empty, empty space. Um, and then a little bit on the right so that I could center the girl whose legs you can see in the blue dress uh, at the full front, well in the middle. I slightly straightened it. Uh, and then I moved the colors slightly off, as in it's not full saturation of the colors, but they're still there. Um, and on this specific image, I actually used a, a basic film emulation uh, to start from, uh, so that there's a bit of a bit of a link to color grading, if you like, so that you understand the process, generally speaking. But it is a different process for stills and for and for video because it's different tools. Now I've done these in Lightroom, so for this specific image, I've cropped a little bit from the bottom, straightened, given it a slightly more filming filmic uh, look, if you can call it that and focused on the girl on the right uh, and the girl on the left and the girl who's blurry in the middle. Everything else is sort of fallen into place uh, with that. So, um, I mean, it's a very heavy blue image. So obviously I've, I've played on that. I've tried to make sure that the different shades of blue remain different so it doesn't get lost. And I turned down this, the, the sky a little bit so that it doesn't become too distracting. So what I've really looked at is what are the things that are not quite as I'd like them and fix those things rather than try to turn this image into um, something else. And the reason for it being, it's not my image. If I knew, right, this is interesting. I know, like, I, when I look at this photo, I can see a Roman, even though you took it, I can see that Roman has colored it. It's a weird thing. It's like, because I think I've, I've there's, there's a cleanness, you know, this cleanness that I talk about, there's, uh, there's an, there's a precision. There's like an efficiency to the way he works. There really like, is. It's like like the, the blues, those tones of blue that carry from the front of the frame through the dress all the way to the jeans and right out the back, you know, on the woman with the blue. This, and you can see that those different tones of blue within the frame. I love it. I, I just think, yeah, I I think it's... um, And it's not... It's almost not it's like... It's not like... I don't know if it's... It's not a cold blue in a way, is it? It's like a... It feels doesn't feel cold it feels i think maybe because the girl's yellow hair on just the edge of the frame yeah Um, i've raised the temperature of the of the picture to make it warmer but then i thought it just does something to the blue that i don't like as much so i turned down the blue but i think it's it's interesting in the process when you do it yourself that you realize you do one thing and maybe it has a positive impact on what you're trying to fix but negative impact on something else Mm. and what a lot of people do at that point is say "Mm, maybe not Whereas I say, yeah, okay, I can do that, but can I fix the thing that I've broken now? There's definitely some elements of this that that stand out to me a lot more than in in my original edits. Um, 
particularly the the girl on the right, she really, really stands out. And I think in mine, I think it's, um, I'm not going to say flatter because I think there's probably more contrast in, in my edit, but yeah, it's, it's super interesting to see, to see your own photos edited by somebody else and sort of seeing what they're seeing. And like Paul, Mm -hmm. uh, my eyes jumped straight to all the different tones of blue. There's like the kid with no shirt on, on the left-hand side, you can see he's Mm -hmm. kind of got these teal looking jeep, like jean things on. And there's the lady in the background with this like really shocking electric blue jeans that she's gone next to that yellow, which really sort of bounces off each other. Yeah. It's super interesting. I, I've had many years of Paul processing the images that we would shoot um, at, at Studio Visual, and he would obviously listen to my feedback because you know we're both in it, um, as in it's, it's, it's our work. We, we are protective of it, but at the same time, it was always quite therapeutic for me to see how my images could be used differently to what I intended. Um, and I think that makes you grow as a creative. Regardless. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an amazing thing that having, again, it comes to this point of having somebody you can say, what does this look like? And you go, that mate, you've just gone, look, bring that saturation down. Or, and, and it's having that, like, you know, I think it's having the voice of somebody else that is, tr- it's a trusted voice. Somebody yeah, that you, believe, you know, I think that the, the, the trust brings other things to the conversation. Um, it takes away the, the, the unnecessary questions as to whether they really mean it or they have your best interest at heart. I think also it's, it's a, we talk about, we talk about process a lot, but it's a process that from start to finish would be happening differently if it was done by a different person. So even in the way that you've shot that picture, I can see what you were trying to do mm. and I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have probably not put the girl that's in the center in the center, but rather on the third, on the left, on the third, on the right, so that I would have made it very obvious as to what the background is. And there's merit to both methods. It's just a more of a second method guy and you're more of a first method guy. And that's fine because, as we said, all these things kind of define who you are. But so my eye, I got attracted straight away to the girl in the background on the right. And to me, that was the main subject. And then I realized, actually, maybe it isn't. And so it's sort of exploring what's in there. I realized that maybe the blue is a character and it's a, part of what, what this image is because it's all about water, it's all about um, this sort of happy moment. It's a, it's a warm blue mm. and that's where, that's where it stems from. Um, but it's through the process that I found it. I didn't decide that's what it was going to be and then did it. I started sort of fixing the things I didn't like until the point where it was balanced, quote unquote balanced. It was as close to perfect as you could, in my opinion, right? It's, it's as perfect as I can make it. And then I thought, okay, what should the color be now? Now, now it's sort of kind of, I can push the colors to be, or the contrast to be helping what I'm trying to. Can I, can I ask you a question, you reminded? Uh, so you've, you know, you, you went photography, color grading in terms of career wise. Do you think now you like, as you edit photos, does, does the way you edit images be informed by how you color grade now? Well, I think now color grading is informed, has informed everything. I mean, is informing everything that I do. I think now color, I've, I've now come to the point that color grading is my thing. Um, and, and it took me a while. So I, I can now say that I am a colorist and a photographer, not a phot- photographer and a, and a colorist, if that makes any sense. So yes, it has, I, I don't see things the same way anymore. I think I have evolved, I've changed, my, my tastes have changed. Um, what I'm trying to achieve as well has changed. So uh, whoever would be looking at these pictures, if they don't think it's good, what I've done, it won't affect me. It doesn't really matter that's never bothered you, mate. No, it's never really bothered me, but it's also <laughs> bothered me because I think you want the client to be happy. 
Right. Um, and while today, for example, I, I mentioned um, I've done a, a job like this week that I can't really talk about. I said in India, nothing specifically. Not insane things, but it's just a nice little piece. And there's this, this, this is disagreements as to what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. And then last minute after everything is done, the client says, can we make everything brighter by a, a stop so that people who are turning the brightness down on their phone can still see it? And I was like, no, no, you, no, we cannot do this. Uh, I, I'm not worried about them being upset with this. Just, no, I, I, we can't. I mean, yeah, if, if you want to, we'll do it. No, let's not do it. You know, and these are the reasons why. Obviously, people who look at it with the right, the right brightness will not see the right image. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think when you when you start getting a bit of confidence in in your opinion and what you what you do and why you do it, you know, you just do what you do. And so I don't really care if, if people like it or not. I just the only way I can be comfortable enough to show you this is to say I will do what I truly believe on the basis of what I know or think I know, and be true and and about it. And and so. Of course, now the way I color grade is massively informing the way I shoot stills, whereas originally the way I would shoot stills and, and, and process stills um, was, was the basis for me building this, this knowledge and this opinions, this, this sort of personality, this, this version of me um, on, on the color grading side. Shall I move on? Shall I move on to yeah, the next yeah, image? Yeah, let's see the next image. Um, because what I think, I, I don't want to spend too, too much time on each because I feel that you'll, you'll find that there's something quite recurrent. Um, but what I try to do with the second image is the lady with the hat. I, I try to always have something where the subject is really obvious. What I think I understand from the picture, I can enhance it. And what I think shouldn't be in there or is something that needs to be fixed, should be fixed. In this case, I've straightened. I've made sure that the pink of the window is soft baby pink, and then I've let everything else fall where it should fall. The only thing that I have done really quite precisely is to raise the black point to the point where there's no single pixel that is pure black. But beyond that, so that wherever you look at it, nothing is crushed. Um, but that's it. Beyond that, I haven't done too much. Um, and I've used another film emulation, a Fuji 160 at about 10% just to, to push the colors to slightly more pastel um, palettes. Yeah, it definitely seems a bit less saturated than the, than the last image. And actually, surprisingly, this is, this is probably closer to the edit I settled on than, than the okay. last one. So if this was a wedding, that would be very much where I would go with this. Um, if it was, you know, an editorial story, then I, I might go a little bit stronger on the edit. I, I, the one thing I am noticing immediately is your your highlights. Your your highlights. Uh, the the dynamic range is totally. There's a maximization of the exposure as much as I can always, and that's something I can't help but do. And this is what I always start with. So, whatever happens, my highlight can't be burnt out unless it's been shot burnt out, and my blacks can't be crushed unless it was shot crushed. But now, if you want it to look crushed. It will be as crushed as it can be without being literally crushed and having, you know, pure black. It will just be sitting on that zero line of, of I like light. It. No, I like it. And, and it's just something I can't, I can't go away from. I, there's, there's, <laughs> um, it gives me too much freedom for what I want to do after to let go of, of this step. Don't crush the black spot. But of course. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll move on to the next one. So the, the, the guy in, in, on the tube is, is an interesting one because 
out of all of those, this is the only one I would have maybe gone black and white. But but I still love color, and and I couldn't help it, and I just still came back to the color. Um, it's already shot in a way that you can barely see anything about his face. So all I did is just balance it out. Um, again, shift the color just a touch. It is saturated, but it's not crazy vibrant. So I've made sure to have a little bit of color separation so you can see the reds in the skin um, on the darker side is stronger than on the brighter side. And I didn't want to focus on any other tattoo but the one on his face um, under the eye. Mm. I made sure that it's not overly saturated on the blues either so it doesn't distract. So I've mostly fixed bits and pieces here and there. There's a gradient on the left to darken the highlights from left to right. Um, there's a very, very soft uh, contrast curve to bring the darkest part of the shadow in line with a slightly brighter part of the shadow. So it feels a bit more like a, like a mass of black at the bottom right of the frame um, that is not gone, that shows there's details, but that is not distracting. And because it's so center, it's sharp, it's, it's a really lovely image. Roman, I haven't had to do much. It, it seems like there's a process that you're involved every time you start. You're, so the first thing you're doing is balancing, then you're refining, then you're putting a bit of polish uh, yeah, on. The, 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 the process is the same always, and I've got actually something. Um, so DaVinci Resolve is a no-tree-based um, editor, color, color editor, um, color grading application. So I don't what use layers. I don't use layers, I use nodes, okay. which means there's a starting point, there's an end point. In between you put nodes and you can connect the nodes in whichever way you want. What it allows me to do is I can pick any node and whatever is the output of this node, I can plug into any other node. Right. So to give you an example. Is this, just, just for my benefit, just so I can follow along, this is like being in Photoshop and then ordering your layers. You're, exactly. you're choosing what feeds into what. Mm -hmm. there's a difference between having a contrast curve first or last, right? Yes, exactly. And this, this, the, this usage of mask where you say this thing applies to this bit and this thing applies to that bit, um, or making a copy of the whole work you've done up to a point and using that copy layer somewhere else for a specific, like to bring back a color from previously in the edit. So it's much easier to do in, in the, in a node based, um, platform. And so, so in that software, what I do is I have, this is the order of operation for me. There is actually something in color grading called order of operation. And it's how the application processes different aspects of the image and in what order. You know, if you do a contrast curve and saturation, ramp up the saturation and darken the black point, all this on the same node, what's the order in which the software is going to process it? Because if it's going to do, say, the contrast before the saturation, and you need it to be the other way around, you will need to put a node for saturation and then put your contrast and whatever else in the next node so that you force the order of operation. And this is a huge concept in color grading because the files that we get to, to grade don't have the full amount of information most of the time. It's not like a raw still. I, don't, I can count on one hand the amount of times I got a project from raw files. And that's because it costs so much money. It needs such a... a, a powerful computer that I think a lot of uh, small to mid-sized um, production companies don't bother unless the grade is really involved. So the process is this, um, exposure, balance, color balance, saturation for me as a separate step, then anything uh, that I need to do to fix is generally what we call in parallel, meaning they all happen at, at, at a stage at the same time. So there's a way to do that with nodes. 
And then after that, there's a, a node for normalization, which is log to reg 709. So this flat profile to a normal viewing profile. So I want all the work to be done on the log for, on the log side of things because it's more information. So it works like differently, but it gives me more freedom. And then after the normalization, I've, I've got what we call a trim node, which is where I do extra contrast and things like that fix. And then I've got a node where I generally desaturate the blacks, the deeper blacks and the brightest white. And then at the very end, I will have um, bits and pieces like sharpening if there's a need. Or at the very, as the very first node, I might have a little bit of um, noise reduction. And that's purely due to the order of operation. So I've got like a set node tree that I put on. My process is to take the image, put my node tree on, add the, the normalization so I can see what it looks like the way it was intended, and then start working from node one up and sort of color balance, fix the things that I need up to the point that I get to the look. And then generally between my normalization and my trim node, I will have some form of look node where I will actually push the color. And so if I turned off that look, it will just look like a really clean image where the white is white, the black is black, the color of the skin is how it's intended. And if it was sunny outside, it's warm colors and, and, and so on and so forth. And that's that's the general process. So so for you, the, the the kind of process is to get it looking technically accurate to start with, and then add the look and feel as as you go along. Like if you're pushing warmer or cooler, or like I, I I noticed this this image here. So uh, this photograph is of another good friend of mine, Carl um, Carl Cooper. He's a tattoo artist who's um, formerly London based. Has just moved to Hawaii. Um, so anybody looking at this wondering how I got so obnoxiously close to somebody on a tube, it's, uh, it's actually somebody I know, um, although, <laughs> although it is candid. I, I noticed that this looks quite technically accurate. Like it, it looks how I remember it. Balanced. It looks, it looks balanced. It, it looks kind of how I remember it looking on the tube, whereas I think my final image, I think I leaned quite heavily green on my tint um, just because I felt like that matched the mood so it's really interesting mm -hmm. to see to see maybe how you do and i think yours you might see, be about a stop or two brighter than you come with this baggage where you you had all the coming up to the picture being taken the taking the picture and then the processing mm -hmm. and i don't have that and when we talked about it i said to you what's what should i treat them as you know do you, are they supposed to be something you're like no whatever you want so if it's whatever i want then it becomes, I, I, I don't really know what I want because I don't know what this is for. And this is what the process of the colorist is. is um, if, I, if, if this is a guest at a wedding, again, to take that example, mm. I would treat it slightly differently. And if it's a, if it's a poster for this guy because he's a tattoo artist, then I'll probably push closer to a very, very contrasty black and white or a, a if he's a more into grunge, maybe, you know, yeah. I think I would find my own style within the constraints of the brief you then deliver something that I feel works. So it's bound to look, it's bound to look different. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is really interesting. I, I, you're, you're working within your brief, right? So if you get full creative control and, and maybe you're not sure where you want to go with it, then you're going to come out somewhere that's maybe quite technically accurate um, without really trying to imply your own voice on it and just letting the, the image or the, the film speak for itself, mm -hmm. um, which I can already see that the next image um it looks like you have maybe gone for a little bit of a, a look and feel to, to this one. So the, the next image is funny. I tried a bit more because I thought that maybe, maybe the intent behind that was to show just this stolen moments from the streets, 
um, of a stranger and it's a street picture. And so I think a very natural looking image yet really emphasize the effect that the light has from, you know, night lights and neon. So what I did is I basically focused on balancing the inside. And once I did that, the rest fell into what it looks like now. And so I tried cropping and I tried other things to see if I could make it even more beautiful, if I can, if I can say that. But what I realized is that if I centered the guy too much, then it would feel a bit too perfect for the moment. He didn't seem that happy. He didn't seem to be doing anything specifically interesting. He seemed a little bit lonely, maybe. There's no one sitting with him. I'm curious as how red he was before you got to him. Quite red. Quite, Quite red. red. I think uh, it's, it's mostly reduced uh, color casts and touching up a little bit of contrast, but it's, it's not a hugely, there's a tiny contrast curve as well. I've basically stolen the contrast curve from one film emulation that I like, and then I tweaked that. Um, and then when I thought it was too much, I reduced the effect by about 50%. Dan, a question for you, mate. Mm. Can you see like, even though the, the five images that you sent, Romana, wildly different, there's a consistency from the first one through to the last one with the way that he uses color in that it's, it's, it's almost like a gentle touch. It's like, it's this subtlety to it that isn't forced upon you. And I think that's the skill, isn't it? It's, it's, it's like we've always, me and Roman always said less is more. And the more we've done it, like, uh, like and, and I, maybe not so much in color grading, but, but definitely in photography, the idea of you, you want to use the colors that are in the frame already and just try and enhance them to enhance your mood. So it's, it's delicate touches, you know, it's not, it's not big hand swerves with the curves. It's not adding, and when you start off, you are a bit wild with these sliders, you know, they are forcing you into strange places and you're like, oh, this is really cool. I can put saturation to a hundred, but you realize over time that actually what you don't want to be doing any of that really. I mean, most of the time it just, I think it's it's the subtlety and it's the it's the gentle brush strokes that you're you're trying to achieve that that just adds to the mood of right, the photo right. rather than distracts from it, right? You're not trying to make it sickly. You're 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 trying yeah. to you're trying to gently enhance what's already there or take away yeah. the things that shouldn't be there or or are overly distracting. You're not necessarily trying to um you're not you're not coming at it with a sledgehammer, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But what's yeah, interesting gentle. is actually your eyes um, are massively, the human eye is massively adaptable. So if I put you in a room that has a slightly yellow, yellow light and that's the only light, see, there's no outside light, it's just this one room, no window, white walls, and then you've got a yellow light and you stay there long enough, the walls will not look yellow anymore. They will look white because you know it's white and your brain adapts and tricks you into believing that they are still looking white. And then you come out of that room into daylight and daylight feels blue for a split second. And I think what's interesting is if you're not careful with this, you can let it basically break your judgment, you know, influence your judgment in a way that is, is unintended. So you go about and you, you know, you take pictures and then you, you go and sit at the computer, you process them for six hours and then you go to bed. And the next day you look at them and the first half is looking amazing and increasingly, it gets worse towards the end. Um, and so you learn your lesson. Actually, I can't do hours and hours of processing and, and color manipulating without things becoming trashy and too much. But then as you grow as a colorist, or as a photographer, or as a filmmaker, or as anything that's creative, including design and, and website making, anything that is too obvious while it was there 
is in your face and shouldn't be there. Anything that's too subtle, if it was intended to be there, it's too subtle. You know, it needs to be pushed forward. And, and when you learn that, then you first as a way you shoot and then as the way you process, you start bringing those things back to a more subtle level and being a bit more uh, intentional. And then the result actually ends up being magnitude better, uh, huge, hugely better, um, just by, by being not in your face. And you know those rules, right? So now you, because you know them intrinsically deeply, like you, it's, you know how far sometimes you can push it and where other times you wouldn't. And it's, it's this like some subconscious, um, I don't know, dictionary of all the ways that you know that using, looking at millions of photos and editing thousands and thousands of photos over time that you know now. Like when you look at an image, it's like, okay, then I just, I just need to balance that first. I, it's kind of, it's a subconscious thing. You, you, it's it happening without you even thinking about it, right? It's, it's, it's a everything process. you watch, everything you look at, every album you listen to, every, everything that's important in your life, all of that at some point or another will have some form of influence on, on the art that you create. So personally, I, with color grading now, I, I watch um, stuff that I love, um, sometimes just for the color, sometimes for the story, sometimes for other reasons. And when I realize that something has marked me emotionally, uh, like say when I watched the film Her by Spike Jones, there's something about the colors that is both incredibly modern because it's supposed to be in the future and at the same time, incredibly old-fashioned, like 70s kind of pastel-y kind of soft colors. Um, and there's something kind of reminiscent to the kind of wedding photography that me and Paul used to, used to do as well. A lot of ways, very pastel, very soft, very... And there was something amazingly powerful about it because it was making the environment so omnipresent and yet so easy to not look at. And you could absolutely tell that it was a modern... It's happening 50 or 100 or 150 years from now. It's not really like they say what, what, is, what time it is, but you can tell it's technologically advanced and all that. Um, and at the same time, it's so old-fashioned. And so the, the, these things I notice, I then take note. I don't just notice. I take note of them um, and I revisit them, not often, but regularly, um, to remind myself what I like about it. And then if I'm lucky when a project pops up, not long ago, I've had a look at something that straight away, I think, wow, that's the, yeah, this would work really, my own version of this would work really well potentially on that. And then when you do your first test on a wide shot, you take your hero shot from a scene and you start doing that and it falls into place. It's such an elating, exciting moment because you think, okay, I've, I've actually got something. I've done a feature film not long ago. Uh, during the first lockdown, I was quite productive and I did a, a feature film. It's a sci-fi and half of it happens in space. and maybe a third of the stuff filmed is within this little cockpit they filmed into from, he built in his lounge. Uh, the, the director's called Mike Price. I absolutely loved, love him to bits. He's a very talented guy. Very fun to be around, very fun to work with. And the, the film is called Dune Drifter, if you want to look it up, and it is on Amazon Prime now. Um, what I loved about the first bit of work that we did on it is when he sent me some previews that was filmed with a GH5, which for the people who know is not the most amazing camera. It's one of those sort of just above entry level that has quite a whole lot of bells and whistles that allows it to be better than it really is. So there's a lot of shortcomings behind um, when you start grading and stuff. And yet it came out 
so close to what we wanted, so quick after all the discussions and using influences from different sci-fi films that I liked. And he sent me some episodes of different series that he liked. And I, I looked at these things and I thought, okay, I can see how that would work. And he also gave me a list of all the stuff that would need to be fixed, you know, and there's, there's marks of steps on, in the sand, in the dunes, because it was filmed in Iceland, um, on black sand, beaches, and that needs to be less obvious. And then there's all this greenery that actually shouldn't be that green because it's supposed to be on Mars. So actually the green should probably be turned brown or just not noticeable or just even completely disappear. And all these constraints that once I did the, the original look and then saw that it was working and I got really excited and I started fixing little problems here and there and seeing that it was viable, that feeling of color actually serving the purpose of this, what, 50 grand budget film at best, um, is amazing. It's such an exciting part of the process. But obviously I had to do it in stages and I had to, you know, spend a couple of hours at a time, take a break in between and do a lot of uh, back and forth with the director to get to, um, to that final result. Do you find that that's particularly helpful, sort of taking lots of frequent breaks? It's, it's mandatory, really. It's, it's just not even, you don't have the choice. After about two hours, I think it's, I, I can see things to, to go to shit. It's, it's a funny thing. You've got... You've got this moment where you turn the knob because I've got a little control surface. So a lot of the stuff that I do is, is by hand or almost mechanically. Um, I will turn a certain knob and expect a certain result and something else happens. And I'm like, okay, so third time in a couple of minutes and I'm, I'm clearly not looking at it properly. I need to get out. I'll just go and walk to the, to the window, chat to someone for five minutes, have a glass of water and come back sitting. And then I look at it and the first attempt will be the, the right one. I'll, I'll fix it. Fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Do you know when you're um, you're sitting back with your French baguette and you're um, you're watching the work you've just created and you're going, ah, this 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 is a, a brilliant piece of work, Paul. What what's more important to you, the process or actually seeing the final result? What what's what what gets you? Juices I've got going? sort of three types of three main types of victories. I would call them. Um, the obvious one is when it looks great. When it looks great, and everyone says to you how it looks great. That's really exciting but it's very often due to the filmmaker. The filmmaker has done a really good job and there's a little bit of set design and it's well exposed and, you know, the piece itself is interesting. Then, you know, yeah, I can make it better, but it's still a great piece. The second victory is when it comes to me and it looks terrible and I make it look from anywhere from decent to great. That is a great victory. Um, especially when people get a chance to see what it was before and they go, oh my God, I can't believe that's what you made it look like. And the third kind of victory for me, which is probably one of the most exciting ones, is when I feel like I've successfully worked with someone who I thought maybe would have been difficult or someone who I really wanted to work with. And I feel like the process has worked in a way that actually I like that person. I could be friends with that person. And, and if they come again, I'll be happy to do work with them. Um, now the ultimate victory is when all three of these things happen, meaning not that it would come as a shit quality, but say it would come as something that is not quite as good as what it could be. You make it look amazing. Everybody thinks it's amazing. And the guy loves you. That's, that's when you really get to basically the ultimate goal. Yeah. I am really impressed with how different those images came out compared to, um, Mm. my own edits. It, It is really interesting to see someone else edit your work when you've given them no guidance and just kind of seeing 
their creative design on it and they they do kind of look pretty different actually to to my own edits um, and maybe in the show notes i'll include a roman and a and a dan edit yes. next next to each other yeah, just I'd so love, you can see, to see that yeah just so you can see exactly how different different people are seeing the same images roman i'm particularly interested in uh, your advice for people who want to be more intentional with their own use of color in their own work i'm frozen i think I think we may have lost Roman. Either that or he is really a really good mime. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he just said computer crashed. Sorry about that. No need for an apology. So, Roman, I'm particularly uh, interested in any practical advice you might have for people who want to use colour with more intention. Um, okay, so I think the key word here is intention. I think the, the, the best advice I can give to start is to figure out what your intention is. And I know it sounds stupid, but often we just don't ask ourselves those questions. So someone came to me with a piece not long ago to promote a book. It's such a lovely, sweet moment. It's a couple they're in this really warm environment and it's just, it's love between them. It's just this really nice moment. And I said to him, what's your intention? He said, oh, well, let me tell you about the book. So he told me about the book because he wrote the book. And I said, okay, but what's your, what's your intention? He said, well, I, I thought I explained to you what my intention was. So then we spoke to the director of photography and I said, what was the intention on set? And he said, oh, because he's very, very experienced. He said, oh, we wanted to, everything to be dipped in honey. We wanted this to be a loving moment. We wanted to be a nice illustration to these few words. So then coming back to the director who was sitting next to me, I was like, okay, well, actually that does make sense. Now we have to figure out how far we want to push it. Um, and the original version was too far. We ended up at the request of the director, dialing it down and make it, making it more realistic, more natural, naturalistic. So first off is basically figure out intent. You have to really be able to articulate intent. This is something that Paul and I go through on every single project where we can't start developing the project until we've figured out that intent. Because he'll say something to me and I'll say, but why? And he'll rack his brain and tell me why. And then I'll say, do you mean that? he will be like, yeah, I mean that, but in this way. And then I'll say, well, what if you mean that in this way? Does it not mean this thing instead then? And then so we have this actual, actual conversation where maybe I don't understand. Maybe I do, but I'm playing devil's advocate. And we're very, he said it a few times and I truly believe it. We are extremely lucky to have this relationship where we can totally trust um, that the intention in that conversation is to get the most out of it. Um, so intent is is the big the big word there. What is your intent? Once you understand your intent, then the next thing is probably figuring out tools. So if you don't understand color, generally speaking, I think speak to someone who knows about color. Your filmmaker is a good place to start. A set designer is a good place to start. If you are can, a photographer, can I ask you a, um, sorry, your man. Can I ask you yeah. a quick question? How much how much time have you? spend reading color theory and all that kind of not have you have you have you spent a lot of time on it or how would how would you and i know because this is let me just let me just say uh, this yeah I, i'm only asking you because i think like i think most of I'm, I'm you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think most of your knowledge has come from looking and doing doesn't it and you spend a bit of time like you spend loads of time reading watching videos and watching films and speaking to other people within the industry because you do 
you got you've actually worked on some really famous films, right? And you've seen my, a- my first big experience was on um, a, a film called Captain Phillips. Um, actually, before that, it was it was a, a YouTube project called Life in a Day, um, produced by Ridley Scott's company, um, and that was quite informative. But then I did Captain Phillips. I was part of the the techs, the team of techs who were helping the editorial department. So nothing glamorous, but. It just, you've got a foot in and, and everything else that came from the industry, obviously you learn about this stuff, but I, I am incredibly technical. And so I have to basically lean on that. So for me, it's a good way to find out roughly where I want to go and then develop from there, but not everyone is that way. So I, I think, hang on, I, I think it's important. It's important to understand some level of theory and that level is different for everyone. I am incredibly obsessed obsessed with not understanding certain things and it bothers me. So if, if I talk to you about contrast, we can do a whole podcast about contrast because I am absolutely obsessed with it at the moment because I've just started to really understand an aspect of what makes some of my grades more filmic than others when it was pretty much the same footage. And that's bothered me because I thought it was a problem with skills when actually I've realized, luckily in my case, because that's what I'm good at, that it was a hole in my technical knowledge. And that is an easy thing to gap. Someone shows you, you, you understand it eventually, and then you can apply it. Um, but so, but, the, but there's also the color theory side where you have to understand a little bit. We talked about this very lightly, but, you know, what does a certain color do to a certain what sort of feeling does it bring? And if you have a really happy moment, but you make the grade really blue and, and, and cold and, and, and dreary, and what does it do to it? And I think the best thing to do and the best advice I can give is just do it. You know, don't do it on the job. Once the job is finished, take a scene and think, that scene, if I made it a completely different feel, let's start on the premises that it's winter. So then you make it a winter scene that is still happy but cool. And what you've, you start um, doing by doing this is you start real, realizing what are the elements within that specific frame that make you feel the way you feel or, or that should make you feel the way you feel about it or you want to feel about it. So I've got a sad scene at the end of a film, but it's a happy moment because everyone's alive. I'm not going to treat it the same way than if it's a happy scene in the middle of a, of a happy part of the film on a, on a comedy where everyone's laughing throughout. And, and, and so because all of these aspects are, are important, when it comes to, to the moment and you have to do it on the spot and you're there, you're in that scene, you have to identify what it is. You can't go and learn some more. It's all the learning you've done up to that point and all the influences that you've brought up to that point that you have to trust. It's informing your, your decision enough to bring you in the right direction. And if not, you have to be humble enough to let a director or a director of photography or a producer, um, you know, or sometimes even the person who's just paying for it who's in the background nagging you a bit. Um, because at the end of the day, their money is their time, it's their project, and it's what they want. And you have to, to bow down sometimes to other people's decisions. And I always say in, in those projects that I have no pride. If I want to be a good colorist, I can't have any. I, I have no pride. This is not about what I want. It is about what they want. And I'm a bit of a tool for them to get where they want to get to. And if I'm happy with the result, then... Honest, like you're a, you're a transformer, right? You kind of you you're taking the ideas, maybe. Yeah, you're putting it through your Kiddishim process with a bit of French pushing, and it comes out the other side. <laughs> it comes out the other side, right? And, and 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 I think that's that's the like I think you know it's again we talked about values last week, Dan, and I think it's your values and the things 
that matter to you. It comes out through the work that you make. And, and, and even as far as like Roman, when he's color grading, all of these experiences and all of the skills and the technical knowledge that he's gained and his life experiences inform how he is using color um, within a particular job. I think project. it's very true. It's very true because I, I've always wanted to be transparent as a person only because I could never lie. Whenever I would lie, I would get caught. I, I'm just not a good liar. So I just don't, I just don't lie, you know? And, and when I just, when I say I don't lie, the very, very rare white lie that I don't even realize I'm, I'm giving a lie is, is what I can get away with. And that's that. So in the work, it's been incredibly useful. It's such an amazing thing to be able to just be a hundred percent yourself and go, look, when I don't know, I don't know. You know, and, and when I'm going to do something for a reason, this is what I need to do. And this is why, if you don't want me to, that's fine. It won't look good. And that's fine. And the people let you, the people trust you and believe you. Um, I think Paul said once uh, in his, in the, one of the previous episodes, you guys did together, something along the lines of, I'm, I'm really reliable. I've wanted people to be reliable. I have to be what I want from people. I have to be able to, to give that, to be able to demand it. And so I, I have this huge, um, imposter, <laughs> I feel like I'm never good enough, but I just go at it anyway and I'm giving 100% of honest work and hope that it falls in place. I mean, it's interesting. It might be from the beginning when we first started together, Roman, but this idea of confidence and how confidence plays a part in your ability, not only to convince yourself, but to convince the client. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, if you're, if you're confident in your approach with what you're doing, that translates into the work you're producing. And Good then that you. translates into the clients that you're speaking to. And then that translates to the wider audience. And it's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. That it's, a, it's whatever barriers you put to yourself early on is going to be massive by the end of it. And you mentioned uh, the Ministry of Sound project that we worked on together. And um, I'll always remember that first conversation after the, 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 the first brief where me and Paul sat at it and said, so Paul's going to shoot this, that, and the other, and this is how they want to do it. What do, you th- do they think they're going to do about prepping and making it real and, and, you know, spraying all these different moments and different people and different times at, at the beginning before the night, at the end of before the night. And it all sounded like, how are we going to go about doing it? Really so disjointed. When we found, right? Yeah, when we found a solution, which was to go the exact opposite, shoot it raw, dark, contrasty, real light, um, you know, grainy, go there week after week for three months. And I went and I did the first once or twice with him in a club from like midnight or one to 4 a.m. And I, I could have not done any more. And he went for 12 or 15 weeks um, religiously shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting. And I think what happens is that by the time you, pr- you propose a solution, if you believe, truly believe, this is the best uh, outcome possible, um, and you can prove it by saying, okay, do you know what? I'll go once. You won't, you won't pay me. I will shoot for an hour and I will give you my five best pictures and you can see what comes out of that. And they say, yes. And you go and you shoot and you do what Paul did. He delivered maybe 25 pictures and they were like, can we use those if we, if we want to? And he was like, yeah, but I've gone once, you know, it's, it's not, once is not a job. We're going to go and we're going to do the job. And so we developed the concepts. We took all their ideas, all the song. There was a line from a song. It was a time of the, of the night. It was a certain feeling. It was a bunch of things. Um, and Paul, I gave him a hand the first couple of times and then he went, you know, 12, 15 times and he shot and shot and shot and shot. And we reverted back to this list of things when we did the edit to pick the images that we felt 
had some form of link with what they were after. And what we picked was different to what they picked. And, and then what they did with it as a poster worked in a completely different manner than when, because we didn't have that visibility. Um, and it went on to be a great campaign that ended up on the tube. And it was the biggest ever campaign done by the Ministry of Sound. I think it was a quarter of a million pound, uh, all, all format and all aspects. So it was photography on this specific thing was a part of it, a small part of it, a tiny part of it, really. Um, uh, but this, this, this says exactly what we're just saying now, which is by being true to yourself throughout and by saying, you know, this is genuinely what I think. Uh, would work and I'm willing to put myself on the line there and just sort of go and do some tests and show you what I think would work and and when we when we hit send for that first email with those first images even though I didn't shoot them I was just there during the pre-production and post-production and we sat and we talked and we developed it together how did that feel when we sent it we were shitting ourselves because we thought <laughs> that's oh all God. we could do and let's just hope it works and when he came back that he loved it he was like oh my god I they they like our images they like us they, they, they've, you know, and I don't think there's any, any mystery to it. And like, and, and some like, you know, it's interesting that in the, like, I, I'm totally different as, in terms of how I see my commercial work where you're, you're working for a client to how I see my personal work. And there's a difference in that I'm a lot more confident in that commercial sphere because maybe the, the voice has been informed over a longer period of time and we've done lots and lots of different jobs, right? There's also one thing, which is that you've always done just whatever the fuck you liked. Um, yeah. and, and whenever the client would say something, you'd come to me and say, they want this, I want that. What do you think? And I'd be like, well, why don't we do it kind of a bit in between for find a sort of a happy medium? And you'd be like, yeah, I'm happy with that. And it would still go and do and shoot whatever the fuck you want. Because at the end of the day, when the client likes it, they don't really know what they want sometimes. Sometimes no, they, they do, they and you have to respect that. They're not as technical, Often they don't right? know what they want. Mm. Very rarely do they know what they want. So when, when they don't know what they want, you have to kind of spoon-feed them different types of things they can maybe like that would fit for that. It's, it's an education thing, right? Totally, totally. And, and uh, we've always said to every single... After the first big commercial job we did together in around 2012 um, or 2012, 11, maybe. After that, every client we would sit down with, we would say, look, we're going to tell you how it works so we can teach you our process, not like crazy in details, but just so that you understand what, what you can do to make the most of it. But what I was going to say is that the fact that Paul has been so um, uncompromising in his way of shooting, which is so wholeheartedly into it, completely all-encompassing, fully passionate, um, off-the-cuff, kind of in-the-moment just don't care about what people think, lay down on the floor to find the right angle or, or hang off a thing or, or, you know, it doesn't really matter for him. He'll get the shot that he likes, uh, whatever happens, and then he'll edit it on top of what the client asked in his own way as well to give them an option. That means that when people say, oh, we've loved the work you've done for X, Y, or Z, like say Ministry of Sound or Freeview or, or whoever, MTV, whoever, whoever it was that we did some work and you liked it, we know we can do it again because we didn't try to do somebody else's work or somebody else's style or somebody else's approach. So there's no question as to what they like. They like what Paul did on that job and they want something along those lines as well. So then you can turn to the client and say, well, this is how it was done. You know, imagine this, this. The they wanted X, Y, Z and we gave them A, B, C and this is how we, we got to that point. So it's a very, very useful um, thing to be a bit like Paul. If, if the, your listeners are more like me and they're a bit more square and a bit more, you know, <laughs> imposter syndrome and a bit more need to know what they're talking about, then it's much harder to get projects off the ground. So we've been very lucky because Paul has been able to say yes to anything. And then he's turned to me and said, how do we do it? And I've had to worry 
or how we're going to do it. And 99% of the time, then back to the client together and said, this is how we can do it. I'm endlessly fascinated how it doesn't matter what, what we talk about, we're, we're now three episodes in and the conclusion of pretty much every topic is, is how you need to stay true to yourself and stay true to the things that, that back work yourself, for you. Back yourself. Right, yeah. right. Because fundamentally, if you do that, it, it, your voice will come out and the work will be all the better for it, for you just showing your lived experience. Um, I'm really conscious that we're, we're running quite low on time. Um, so this is the point in the show where we like to um, just shout out some of the things that we're into. They could be hugely successful things or maybe things that we, we don't feel are getting quite enough exposure. I think that Roman has his own shout out for, for this week, which is really cool. I'm just aware of Paul's time limits and Paul might need to shoot off at some point for, for some prior commitments. And he's, he's got kids to look after. I think maybe if we go to Paul first. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you about a little website called Photo Book Junkies. It's run by a guy called Dan Wood. He's a wary, very talented Welsh photographer. Um, and he set up a little bookstore. Um, and the interesting thing about Photo Book Junkies is Dan is a bit of a, a foot, photo book aficionado and he, he basically he only buys books that he thinks are decent you know really good and there's some old ones in there some new ones in there but it's the, the quality and the content that he's got on that little store wonderful photo book junkies go see dan buy a book I've, i think also just to chuck one extra in there just a, a bonus shout out dan wood's photography as well is also brilliant yeah. so uh, oh. it was what was his last book suicide machine no, it was Gap in the Hedge. Gap in the Hedge was his last one. He's got a new one coming out in about a month, I think, as well. I, I definitely recommend people go and check out Dan's work because it is incredible, as, as well as checking out his photo book, Junkie site. Um, so for me, the shout-out will be someone called Dan Mostyn. Um, he's a very interesting colorist who's based, I think, in Brighton. Um, and about six, seven months ago, he started a YouTube channel where he basically talks about color grading and shows off a mix of techniques and talks about the way he works and, and why he works a certain way. And now the YouTube stuff is quite good and interesting and it's definitely real world methods. It's not one of those part who thinks is amazing when he doesn't have the, the uh, experience in the industry. So it's definitely the kind of techniques that are uh, useful and, and, and something that you can rely on. And, and I mentioned low post being another place to go earlier in the podcast. So I, I really strongly suggest to, to check that out. But what's particularly interesting about Dan, um, Dan Mostyn is he is basically very open. So he'll respond to any comment. If you contact it by email, he'll probably take some time, but he'll probably take the time to respond as well. And he's also getting more and more active on Clubhouse, which is this new voice only. Um, social media platform that's sort of taking the UK by storm at the moment. Um, and he's very accessible. You can speak to him and I think he's a brilliant, a brilliant colorist. So I thought I'd keep it UK based rather than anything. Um, I've got a whole list of influences of, of mostly photographers who have influenced me a lot over the years, who I think have a really big part of my, my visual language. Um, and we can go through those now or later, or you can put them in a note if you want. Um, but I wanted to, to be the shout out to be something a bit more um, color grading oriented. That's really cool. Um, if you could send me a link of, uh, of of Dan's 
channel that you're recommending there i'll, I'll add that sure. into the show notes because i i know i'm i'm for one i'm i'm really interested in it and we're definitely going to have to have you back for a part two roman because this conversation yeah, has been so like, interesting and i feel like we've barely scratched the surface of i feel the same of as any well. of these topics we, we haven't got to talk about your favorite films the things that influenced you in terms of film so so i'd say instead of sending me over a like the list to include in the show notes let, let's just put a pin in that keep keep that on the okay. note somewhere and we'll we'll definitely set up a part two at some point hopefully fairly soon with pleasure um so my shout out this week um just thinking about cinema and thinking about having roman on is actually a movie my my pick this week is big fish tim burton's directed movie tanya and i we've been picking a director and watching all their movies in chronological order which is really really interesting because you get to see things that they do that you don't necessarily spot if you just watch the movie by itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a movie that we saw in the cinema, and when I think of Tim Burton, I think of sort of stop motion gothic stuff or quite heavy gothic fantasy, quite light hearted family movies. And actually, having watched of all all of the Tim Burton films pretty much back to back, what I now see Tim Burton as is a really really good storyteller. Definitely, that he has this kind of quirky surreal take on stories that bleeds through in into his movies and this movie big fish i feel like is this underappreciated gem i think i'd only watched it once when it originally came out of the cinema and now going back to it is it's possibly one of my favorite tim burton movies it's just this amazing uh journey it's it's essentially about ewan mcgregor who plays a character named ed bloom jr and he's he's grown up hearing his father's tall tales and this film is his journey to try and separate fiction from fact before his father dies and it's just this beautiful telling of this of this journey that he's on it's a film that sort of stuck with me a little while after watching it as well i mean it's stuck with me now and i'm sort of i'm an extra film on isn't it interesting that films and photographs and all of that it's never the technical stuff it's never the details that stay with you there's it's always a feeling it's a feeling it's a moment it's it's what you get out of it it's so personal all the details outside of that don't matter just for that duration for, for the hour and a half two hours of the film that you watch it you're just completely somewhere else you're, you're in somebody's mind in somebody's world and i love that i love that currently I'm, I'm devouring films because of lockdowns and me and my partner we don't love the same things we i mean we, we there's some things that we both love and then there are definitely things we both know the other one wouldn't like at all and we try to watch them separately um, and a bit, I'm a big sci-fi buff, um, and I love I love watching sci-fi films. I watch them over and over again, and it gives me that feeling that nothing else gives me. And I find myself forgetting about how it was made. Even when I worked on it, I just get the same feeling. It doesn't matter. I just this, this storytelling and what it tells me about me and the world that I live in. I love it. It, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, if you think back about your childhood, it's exactly the same. You you might remember little moments, little snippets here and there, and, and you might remember very clearly a place or a time or a smell or something. But what you actually really, really remember is, is how you felt in that moment. And I think mm. it's the same for film. I think back I about agree. this big fish film and I, I sort of, I remember the feeling that I got from it and the feeling that you're watching Ed Bloom on this quest to find out who his father was. And that for me has been my really incredible. And this film has stuck with me in a way that other movies haven't for a little while. So cinema is a really impressive thing where it just has this ability to transport you. It's kind of magic in a way, isn't it? It is. It is. And this is why I think if you've seen certain films, 
it allows you sometimes to appreciate other films better because of the references between one and the other. And, and if you take the bigger picture, you realize that it's true of everything. If I tell you how great a person you are, and in there I use the one line from the one song that you love so much, is only going to speak to you even more than if I didn't. And all these elements become so central to just our way of understanding what we're watching, what we listen to, what we... And so I feel like there's so many more layers to it that I, I can never get bored. There will always be someone who, from the deepest, darkest place in their brain... I will come up with a story that deeply touches me. Um, and when, as a colorist, I, I feel that the color is not a character as such, but almost it's a, it's, it's one of the, the strings on the bow. It's one of those, it's one of those elements that is woven in the fabric. It is part of what that, that thing is and it's turning it. It's part of what turns it into what it is and what it, 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 it is to me at that point. Then it, it makes me, really feel elated and, and excited and and I feel like oh I get this thing it just it gets me and I get it and I feel more complete and and it just makes my life better and I find that for me as a colorist as sort of a conclusion to this is being part of the process is already in itself a victory being able to then carry through the work in a manner that is satisfactory but still you know having your own little touch and your own little voice there is even better. And then when people who have appreciated the piece can appreciate your work on it, then cherry on the cake, I feel like it's an incredibly lucky position to be in, be it uh, being a photographer or a filmmaker or whatever, doing any kind of job that you love as much as I, I do know I love mine and, and I know how much Paul loves his. And he told me many times over how much you love yours, um, your company and, and, and the work you do, the charity. I think this is the exciting part for me is feeling like you belong and feeling like there is something that kind of makes sense in this crazy world, you know? That was put wonderfully, Roman. And I think that's the perfect place <laughs> to, to cap off this episode. Um, voilà. I, I caught the very, caught the very <laughs> French magic at the end, the garlic The, the, the passion. Nice. The passion is real. Um, thank Don't you very you much. You can speak about this your whole life? All my life. You can spend all day, every day, do nothing but talk shit about it. I Listen, it. We, we, we could keep this episode going for another another two hours easy but no problem at all so we're definitely going to have to do a part two on this and i'm really looking forward to it already um thank you everybody that's managed to tune in for this uh, and, and stuck with us for for this slightly longer episode we will catch you again next week see you later everybody thank you bye bye bye, -bye.